of Ghost Squad, and this is Write or Die. Beep, boop, beep. You like how I low-key just started saying also like Vicious Spirits? No, I intro. like that. That was smooth. That was like so smooth. Yeah, so smooth. <laughs> I, oh. I guess I could also say um, my other book, but it feels so far away that I just don't want to start talking about it yet. That's fair. Yeah. I cannot believe how long it takes for a uh, graphic novel to it's be It's no joke. It's, it's no, no joke. joke. So, um, so the illustrator, um, Rose, they were telling me how they were, well, they put on their um, Insta stories, how they were doing thumbnails. They had to do over 200 thumbnails and then they mm-hmm. could start like doing pencil art. It's so much work. Like, it's a lot. It's, yeah. Like, our, um, our friend Alex sold a graphic novel and I was like, Oh, when's it coming out in like a year or two? And she was like, she was like, no, not for at least three years. I have to draw it. And I was yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of work. It's really a lot of work, but it'll be worth it. Um, so yeah. this week we're going to talk about something that people don't usually talk about and it's called submissions. Uh, I like how you just like seamlessly transitioned into talking at the end. <laughs> You're like, this do. isn't something you could sing. <laughs> this is serious. Um, this is serious. So if you've listened to other episodes or if you know because you looked it up or because you're in publishing, submissions is basically the process by which you get traditionally published, I guess. Like your not I guess it is so your agent will send your book to different editors at publishing houses and then they'll read the book or not um and then if they like it they will normally take it to an acquisitions meeting not every place has uh, traditional acquisitions meetings I've been told but they'll take it to some sort of decision making process and then if everyone agrees you get an offer for a book deal and then if a lot of people want your book, you get an auction. And then you're the bell of the ball for a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, but submit- I always say mm. I always say you're the um, you're the most you're the most beautiful girl, the Harvest Moon Ball, because <laughs> it's from this movie um, Robots that I really like. Robots? What is yeah. is that is that that sounds like a nineties thing. No, it came out recently. It was like a it was like a um, animated movie from DreamWorks with Ewan McGregor and Greg Kinnear and oh, never mind, I'm dumb. Um, yeah, but I, that's important. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's... Halle Berry was sorry. Outside of play. Yo, why are you still talking about this movie? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It was a really good movie. Anyway, um, so people don't usually talk about submissions like at all in public like it's one of those like fight club things like you just don't talk about it and I feel like that whole secrecy around it has made it a really hard for like newer writers to know what it's all about or find information about it and b I think it makes it this like really lonely uh hard process to go through because you feel like you need to go through it alone Mm -hmm. um 
But we're here to tell you that we have to smash all of those secrecy systems because they're not helping anybody. Um, It's one thing I understand if, like, you don't want to go talking about specific, like, rejections or, like, this is my submissions list or, like, anything like that on Twitter only because, like, your agent has a specific strategy, right? And maybe you don't want to publicize all of it only because it's like a business a strategic business maneuver but I feel like so many people can't even say like oh I'm on submission like not even say that part of it and I feel like that makes it a lot more anxious making how about you Kat I agree also when you said we're here to we're here to tell you Um, I thought you were going to say, you are not alone. And then I was going to go, you are not alone. No, you can't sing that. We'll get sued. Oh, no. My my singing voice is so bad that they'll never be able to recognize it. I recognize it. I recognize it. Oh. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Um, I feel like I need to be candid with the listeners and be like, I forgot we were recording this. And I have a glass of wine. And I get, I'm a lightweight. So... (laughs) I apologize for my tangents. Anyway, going back to the subject at hand, submission. Very lonely. Mm. I agree. And also, I think there's something to be said about the fact that, like, whether we admit it or not, we sometimes, like, get into this really competitive mode, even if we're only in competition with ourselves, right? And so you kind of don't want to tell people, like, sometimes when you're on submission, because you're like, what if it takes me, like, too long to sell? Mm -hmm. And then that affects how they feel about the quality of my book Mm -hmm. and blah, blah, blah. And maybe Kat's saying this from personal experience. (laughs) uh, But it's true, right? Because I also think, like, sometimes times when we get really excited about something we tend to do a lot of research yeah and for me my research was to listen to like every single submission podcast episode or blog post that I could find and I I really I realized that like when people sold really quickly it created like a lot of buzz around it people got really excited it was like Mm -hmm. oh my god like you know this book must be really good in order to have sold so quickly right and so I was like, oh, will people not care about my book if it doesn't sell quickly? And I, you know, talked myself into a frame of mind before I went on submission for the first time of being like, thinking there's a a ticking time clock, right? Yeah. And so because of that, I was very secretive about it. I was like, I'm not going to tell anyone I'm on submission. What if it doesn't sell quickly? What if they judge it that way? Yeah. Um, And and then all. I also let it make me spiral because famous origin story of writer dies that like two weeks into my sub, I said to Claire Bell, it's never going to sell. Mm-hmm. And then she made this whole podcast to prove to me that I was being ridiculous. <laughs> so I understand this is all to say that like, if you're listening to this and you are like really scared about your submission process or you're overthinking this, then I'm here to tell you like, don't worry. It happens to us. A lot of us, mm-hmm. um, it is normal to like worry about it, but but at the same time, on the flip side of that, you don't need to worry. You know, like I, I think that we because there is so little information, we are. It's easier for us to talk ourselves into these spirals, and um, and that really freaking sucks. And at the end of the day, 
you know, the whole point of this podcast, again, is to show people that submission takes a really freaking long time for the average writer. Mm-hmm. Like, for most people, submission is months, if not, like, a year or more, you know? Like, there are a lot of, like, outliers that we hear about, but those are exactly what exactly that they're outliers so don't think that your submission story is not important or special even though like just because you think like it's taking you longer yeah for sure and I think that like a lot of times like you know there are always going to be like those one or two assholes who make assumptions about the quality of your book or whatever because of how quickly it sold or didn't and that doesn't really hold any actual weight when it comes to like, because when you think about it, between the time that your book actually sells and when it comes out, there's so much time in between that. People aren't going to be thinking, oh my God, this is the book that's sold in a month, (laughs) like three years from there, from, from when you sell it. Yeah, there might be like one or two people who keep track of stuff like that, but you shouldn't you shouldn't like organize your thoughts based on like the one or two assholes in the industry that keep track of everything. Um, there was for whatever reason, someone really intent once on finding out like what my submission process was like for ghost squad to the point where they were sending anonymous questions to agents that weren't mine on Tumblr. What? Yeah. You, I never told you this. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, no, so- <laughs> So, so, um, there's one agent, I think it's Jennifer Lagren. like, she does, like, the, she, she, she does a lot of, like, Q&As on Tumblr, um, she's the one that the person, someone asked, like, can you impersonate an agent yourself, um, and pretend to be your own agent with a different name, like, someone asked <gasps> her that, like, and I, I might be getting the wrong agent's name, I'm sorry, but I will link to um, her Tumblr because she does a lot of like Q&As, like if you ask her questions and stuff. But the point is that someone was really intent on finding out like what my like timeline was and like all of this stuff. And people who are really obsessed with that, think about think about that. Like think about why somebody would be so obsessed with knowing that information about you. And it's yeah. for whatever reason, they think that it's going to make them have like a one up on you if they know your oh. process and if they feel like it's not up to their standards. But that's not the majority of people like most yeah. people aren't concerned about that. Most people just want you to do well or, you know, don't give a shit. <laughs> so I feel like. I feel like people I feel like people just give too much importance to what other people think sometimes, which is really easy to say. And and in practice it's a lot harder to not mm-hmm. to not focus on those things. But um but I just I don't know. I just really I worry because like it can, you know how the the people who are like the loudest, it seems like there's so many of them, but just because like they're loud and wrong, it doesn't mean that they're actually the majority. It just means that they're the ones that are like being obnoxious. So it's sticking in your head. And there are people who like judge others by like how big their book deal is or like where their announcement was. And think about if you want 
why do you want to impress those kind of people? And what happens when you suddenly lose favor with them for whatever reason and they don't like you anymore? Like you shouldn't be trying to curate your career for those kinds of people because first of all they're going to move the goalposts a million times second of all they don't actually care about you and third of all the moment that you have something that they deem not good or cool or a-list author or whatever then they're just going to judge you for it because that's what they're waiting for they're waiting for a reason to judge you badly so they can feel better about themselves um they're people like that are just bullies so if there are like one or two people who are worried about like oh this took forever to sell like who cares about them like those people can get fucked that's not what matters (laughs) (laughs) it came out (laughs) i was i was a little shocked there why i always say bad words i know um what if the person trying to find out was like your mom my mom doesn't know how to use Tumblr. She barely can use the internet, <laughs> let alone What if Tumblr. it was like an ex? I think it, it an ex wouldn't, nobody would know that kind of stuff enough to care about it. It was definitely somebody from publishing who was just salty. Yeah. Stay fair. salty. Stay salty, you. I bet they listen to this podcast too because oh, if they're that obsessed with you. A hundred percent. Listen, you. I'm talking to you right now. You better <laughs> calm down, okay? <laughs> Clarabelle's not here for it. <laughs> yeah, I really um, am not. Also, I, I realized as we were talking about this, like you gave like a quick a quick synopsis of, of submission, but I kind of wanted to give a few more like just like details. Okay. Um, just in case people are wondering like some of the nitty gritty of what happens. And I also do want to suggest that if you do want to know some of the nitty gritty, then you go and you listen to Publishing Crawl's episode about submissions Mm -hmm. because it's really detailed. It's from two people who worked on the other side of the table in publishing um, at publishing houses. Um, My information is slightly more anecdotal and also just based on my experience working as an editor. Um, But in general, submission, um, submission is an interesting journey because it, it is not the same from jump for anyone, because it all depends on what your agent, what your agent's plan is for your submission or the plan that you make with your agent for it. Um, Some agents decide to go really widely, like they'll go to like 20 to 30 um, publishing houses. And um, I would say 30 is kind of on the large end for an opening round of submission from what I've heard. But I don't think it's like a red flag or anything like that. Mm. I've also heard of some agents who've had, with really good reason, gone to like a really selected handful of of editors. I don't know all the reasons, but like sometimes going only to like five editors, there could be a reason for that. Yeah. It also might depend on like the genre and like age category too. Like there's Mm -hmm. a lot of different things. And like, you know, for... For me and Susie, like, the last time that we did a submissions, um, like, she sent me my list. Like, it was a certain kind of editor that she wanted to send me to. Like, they have different plans. And those are all things that you should 100% be able to ask your agent about and discuss it with them. If any agent doesn't want to share a submission list with you, that is a huge red flag. Sometimes people don't like giving the names of editors. Like there are Mm -hmm. agencies who will just give you the imprint, right? But I feel like if you 
ask for it and you're like really adamant about like, hey, I want the editor names, then they should be able to give you that. If you are concerned about anything and they won't give you the editor names, that's really not good. Yeah. I think that I, I've heard really good reasoning for why agents like initially won't provide mm-hmm. the right. editor name. Mm-hmm. And part of it is to like protect the, their clients to be mm-hmm. like, I don't want you to spiral. I don't want you to be stalking the editors, all this other stuff. So, um, so then you go on submission, which means that like the, your agent will send out like your submission package to these edit to these editors um and every agent does it differently yeah that's what I was just about to say they all have their own process for that Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and every agent does it differently so some of them will do it by phone call some of them will do it in person meetings someone will then will do it um email then it then it goes to the publishing house and then again the journey differs there because every publishing house research submissions differently sometimes you know there's an assistant for an editor depending on how high up they are sometimes like an acquire, they could be an acquiring editor but they could also be in charge of um backlist so there's some editors who have two have two jobs in a house like they're in, they're in charge of uh like IP and they're also in charge of acquiring original content or some in some houses they're in charge of like it, of really important like one series will have like one editor who makes sure like all the backlog is is being taken care of like goosebumps or something like that that has just a huge catalog but then they're also an acquiring editor so you never know how the process is going to be because every editor does something like they they do their job a little bit differently mm-hmm. and some editors have extra jobs within the house. So that's also something to keep in mind is that editors are not just sitting at their desks reading submissions all day long 20 like 9 to 5 every day. Right. Like they're going to meetings, they're t- they're they're uh editing the books they've already acquired and then like, on top of it some of these editors also are taking care of other editorial jobs. Yeah. Um so that is why it takes a really long time. And that's why it's really common for the process to be months and months and months and months long. Um, and then even when an editor is interested in your book, the way they let you know is different too. Um, sometimes they will reach out to your um, agent and let them know, oh, I'm really, I'm really into this book. Um, sometimes they'll keep quiet until they have a second reads. Sometimes they'll have to go to like an acquisitions meeting first before they can even tell you that they're interested. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they have to go to a different department. As Clarabelle knows, Scholastic has um, school and library. Yeah, clubs uh, and fairs so, they call it. Mm-hmm. Clubs and fairs. Sorry, sorry. Scholastic has clubs and fairs. Other other publishing houses have school and library that they have to get buy-in from. Sometimes an editor is so junior that they have to get a more senior editor to back them up in order to have an e- a better chance of buying it. So that definitely happens is that sometimes like if this is a book where like they're like, I'm so gung-ho about this, but it's it might be a hard sell at acquisitions. So I want to get a senior editor to read it and to back me up when I present it, that could slow down the process too. So Everything is really different in in terms of how they do it. And then, you know, of course, then we get into uh, to auctions and stuff like that. Oh, which is important. Also, I just wanted to uh, offer a little bit of um, comfort for anyone who's on sub right now. It, it will probably take even longer than usual for a lot of places because um, some publishers are working on like staggered schedules or 
you know, everything is sort of working in a different way. Obviously, they're having um, their submissions meetings in in their acquisitions meetings, sorry, in different uh, ways than they used to. It's not like an in-person thing anymore um, or shouldn't be. Imagine. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but yeah, like everything is sort of s- slowed down for the most part right now. There's a lot of other things to consider so on aside from it taking long because of all the reasons Kat just said there's this added factor of um the current pandemic and like what that means for work schedule and like who needs to be in what meeting and are they actually working this week and it's just a lot (laughs) yeah but auctions so yeah woo exciting i feel like auctions is a completely different story like i mean it's a different chat that we can have because it is it feels a little bit it feels different (laughs) and um and also like being on i i also want to like say that sometimes like this happens i'm sure also with when you get agent offers but like getting just one offer for an agent or getting just one offer from a publisher doesn't mean that like you could have had a better offer. You know what I mean? Mm. Like sometimes you get only one offer and it happens to just be like the perfect fit. And just know that when somebody is offering, it's because there are so many factors that went into their decision before they offered in the first place. So like, there's already so much like go, there's always so much that has to align for you to have gotten that offer. And I really want to like, I really want to stress this to people that like, when we look at like other people who went to auction or when we look at other people who had multiple offers and we're like, Oh, does that mean like my offer is not as good because I only got one that this is what I'm talking about is like to have gotten that offer at all. It so many things had to align and so many things had to go right. And so many people had to like your book to begin with. And it's such an accomplishment to get. So you should be proud of yourself and you should know that like this journey is going to be really exciting with this partner, this business partner that you now have, who was so gung ho about your book that they're giving you money for it. And they have whole teams behind them, like marketing teams and all that stuff who's behind them, who's going to make your book the best that they can make it. And that's really important to remember when you get to the end of this journey. Yeah. And also that this is really hard. If you only get one offer, you also don't have to take that offer because it can sometimes not be a good deal. Um, Especially, unfortunately, there are agents who still submit to places that they shouldn't be submitting to that don't pay their authors. And if you if first of all, that's a that's a thing that you have to think about with the agent themselves. But also you have to also research publishers like obviously you should ask your friends about it. And if you know it's like a legitimate publisher, that's different. But there are small presses too that you might not know as much about. And just because they offered doesn't necessarily mean that it's on the up and up. So if it's a smaller press that you don't really know about, you haven't heard about, make sure with your agent, make sure that you're doing your due diligence as well to make sure that they're doing everything right. I've seen a lot of situations where... um, uh, smaller presses just flat out stop paying their authors and mm-hmm. you know there's inf- a lot of information about that online about the ones that I do know about but there's new people cropping up all the time so that's also why it's important 
for your agent to share where your book is going so that you're able to make the decision like, hey, I actually don't want my book to be sent to this place. And you can say that and you're within your right um, to have that discussion with your agent. So um, just like if you get only one agent offer and you feel uncomfortable about it and you don't want to sign with them or you have a bad feeling or you've read things that make you feel like they wouldn't be a good fit, you don't have to accept it. Um, and the same goes for, for deals, even though that feels like the, you know, the, the stakes are, feel a lot higher, but that's exactly why you should make sure that it's someone you actually want to work with. Imagine your book selling copies and you just not getting the money for it or having all sorts of problems. Um, it's, it's, it's more stress than what it's worth. You're better off waiting for an actually good deal to come by. Yeah, that's, that's my sure. rain on your parade moment. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, we, I think we were just looking at it from two different perspectives. My perspective was like all the due diligence was already done. And like you got this, you know, you got this offer from a legitimate publisher. Right. I mean, that's the best it. case. That's the best case scenario, right? That's what you would hope that is happening. But there are people that are with agents that don't know what they're doing. So um, sure. just for those people too, just like also always always check basically just because the light is red don't cross the street without looking both ways like you still need to check if the the car runs you over you're gonna be like but the light was red it doesn't matter like you still should have looked you sound like a mom being like (laughs) you still should have looked both ways (laughs) i am a mom Oh my goodness. No, this is true. This is what we're here for to give. I I guess I'm the nice parent then. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. But submission, I guess TLDR for this free chat (laughs) submission is long and varied and it's kind of a very, it's a very stressful time, but we're all here with you and we understand what you're going through. And you're going to do great, sweetie. Yeah. And and also, like, if you are feeling alone, I'm in a Slack group with a bunch of my friends who we were all on submission around the same time. And it's really nice to have sort of like a private group that you can um, vent to and talk about mm-hmm. so that if you don't, like, like we said, there are certain things you should... You, you should be able to talk about it. and there's certain things that are better left for like private group chat and like it's really good to have like a supportive group because you shouldn't be going through it alone um yeah there's a medium between like twitter and like it's not like twitter or nothing <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> yeah yeah for sure for sure um yeah. but if That's you're on stop good luck we're sending you good yes. vibes we are 18-year-old Goom Young has a secret. She's a Goomiho, a nine-tailed fox who must devour the energy of men in order to survive. Because so few believe in the old tales anymore, and with so many evil men no one will miss, the modern city of Seoul is the perfect place to hide and hunt. Myung's life is upended when she kills a Dokebi, a murderous goblin, just to save the life of a human boy. But after Myung saves Jihoon's life, the two develop a tenuous friendship that blooms into romance, setting them down a path that will soon force Myung to choose between her immortal life and Jihoon's. Wicked Fox finds inspiration in Korean mythology, culture, and Korean dramas. It's been called a vibrant debut novel that employs the Korean genre's conventions for an utterly original take on the young adult fantasy by Entertainment Weekly 
and Fresh and Fast Pace by School Library Journal Review. Wicked Fox is out now from Penguin Random House and is available wherever books are sold. Okay, today's guest is Natasha Diaz. And Natasha was born and raised in New York and is currently residing in Brooklyn with her tall husband, <laughs> where she spends most of her days writing with no pants on and alternating between ER and Grey's Anatomy binges. Natasha works as an author and screenwriter, and her debut novel, Color Me In, is now out with Random House slash Delcourt Press. Natasha, hi, welcome. Hi. hi. <laughs> We're so excited to have you on the podcast. I'm so excited to be on the podcast. Yeah. Um, so let's get started. I want to know uh, how you started writing, when you got your first agent, and how, and how your um, how your first book deal came about. Yeah. Um, well, I've def- I'm definitely one of those people that's always written um, from a young age. I'm an only child, and I feel like I really um, used writing when I didn't have the tools to communicate in other ways, or I didn't want to talk to my parents. and I didn't have someone my age, like around to talk to. Um, and so I've always written, both my parents are writers as well, not like professionally on the side, that's not their core career, but they, I've been around writing my whole life. Um, and I was an English major in college and I, leaving college actually went straight into a completely unrelated field working with, uh, formerly incarcerated women. Um, and I thought I was going to be doing that forever because I loved it. And I got to the point where I was like, I'm either going to go get my MSW in social work, my master's in social work. And because at that point I was an administrator cause I didn't have a higher education degree to be able to do that, um, face to face type of work. Um, But I felt like doing that, I was going to give up this chance to really try to pursue my dream of writing. Um, So I decided to put that on hold and take a chance. And I got an opportunity through uh, a friend who owned his own small production company who I went to college with. So this was two years out of college um, to come work with him on a project as a producer. And so I was like, okay, why not like jump in and try? And so I worked with him for about a year and a half as his producer, but it was a three person operation. So I was also writing and I was, um, also cooking the crew meal sometimes, you know, sort of like you have a hand in every pot, but I fell in love with it. Um, and so I started working in entertainment and I had taken as an English major at Wesleyan, I had taken a lot of, um, script writing and also playwriting courses. So it felt more natural to me in my writing journey to go in that direction as opposed to novels, because, um, I had a lot of, and still have a lot of imposter syndrome when it comes to my ability to write, uh, book successfully and well um and so that felt like sort of out of my reach and because I had a little bit more training in script writing that felt like a a more comfortable way to go about it um not that it's not difficult I just felt more confident because I'd taken a lot of classes in it um and so uh I ended up taking uh, that job. And then once that ended and we had no more projects coming, I had to find other work. And I was, I had a lot of 
set production experience. So I got into reality TV. <laughs> I promise this is going to come full circle to actually talk about how I'm writing books. Um, but so I was working in reality TV for about five years and I worked my way up from being a production assistant on set to being a story producer in post-production, which is a writer in reality TV, because unfortunately, in case you are unaware, it's pretty much all scripted. Um, and so <gasps> <laughs> I was really, I know, shocking. Um, but so I was literally writing, like, when you're watching a show like Real Housewives and you're doing, you cut to, like, their talking head interview, most of those little clips are scripted. And so I was oh writing. Oh, my God. Them. I love that. Okay. So, wait. I, I have a lot of questions about this. I'm sorry. I love reality so TV. So, we are going to be stuck here for many, many minutes. Um. <laughs> So does what you write come from any actual real life feelings or is absolutely everything scripted? So, So do they give you like something to start with and then you go from there or is it like this is the conflict you're going to have with this person? No. So it's actually really sneaky the way they do it. So basically what happens is, uh, so you're in post-production, and so your job is literally to just watch all the raw footage, which is hours and hours and hours of just footage. And as you're watching it, because none of the scenes that you're seeing cut together are actually in in the correct order, right? Like, they film all these scenes, and then you sort of create the drama from what's happening as you're filming. Amazing. And so... Yeah, and it's actually, the one thing I will say is editors in reality TV are geniuses. Like, they are literally sometimes creating full storylines out of nothing. Um, And so, you know, as you're going through, you are picking up on little, like, moments or, or, like, quick jabs that they're throwing at each other and you're going like, okay, this could potentially be conflict. We need to amp it up. And so what you do is in the interviews, once you decide like, okay, this is the, these are the two characters we're trying to like hit against one another. Um, So you go in and, you know, they do these interviews constantly and they have to have the same look so you have to like have make sure they have pictures of all their looks and then you'll say like okay you need to be in this look because we're going to be talking about these episodes and whatever oh whatever my God. Um, so they have to keep <laughs> in with the same look over and over oh um, my gosh and so what you'll do is you'll be like um okay so do you remember that coffee that you had with so-and-so uh where you guys talked about blah 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 like I couldn't believe that they were, you know, and then you'll say something like either something that they said in another scene that this person wasn't present for. So like, I couldn't believe that they said, said that about your husband. (laughs) Right. And then they'll be like, I don't remember them saying that. And they'll be like, Oh man, like that must've been another scene. Well, like, how do you feel knowing that they've said that, you know, and then you sort of get their initial honest reaction because sometimes it's better. And then you'll say like, okay, so that was great. But like, what if you just said it like this? Because that'll be like a quick, it's like a quick to the point bite, right? And that's when they're like, so why don't you say it like this? And so you read what we've written to them. Oh my and God. And then a lot of times they'll push back on it. And you just, keep, and, and also it's, it's hard because they are not actors. And so a lot of times it just doesn't sound good because mm-hmm. they, they're like getting it or they're stumbling over words. And so you'll be like, why don't you just like take that, um, 
that sentiment and try to say it in your own way. And so you'll get them to do that a few times. And then you'll say, and just like once, just, just say it, even if you're just reading it, just say it. Right. Because the other thing that is extremely common, which is one of the reasons why I literally cannot watch reality television anymore, because I hear it all the time is something called Frankenbiting, where you are quite literally like if nothing they give you, and sometimes they'll say, I won't say that because I don't feel that way. Right. Like sometimes they're like, no, I'm not mad at them about that. Or no, we've already squashed that beef. And so I'm not re I'm not bringing it back up. That doesn't matter because you still have all the audio of every interview they've had. And I promise you, they've said every word independently. <gasps> and so you just, no! Oh my god! Uh, oh my god! That's, that's so bad. Evil. That's evil. Evil. Oh my evil god! Evil. There's a reason I left the industry, but oh it's a soul sucking, horrific industry. Um, Girl, but... You need to like write a book, not about this exactly, but like with these feelings, because like, can you imagine like a dystopian YA with like? <laughs> but I like, don't even know if I can do it. And to be honest with you, I don't know if. if either of you have seen the show unreal which is about yes it is i have so accurate oh my god that, yeah that's what i've heard i've heard that it that is, show was really accurate and it's so dark it's like so it's so dark. dark it is so dark and like I, I, honestly watching it I, I got a little bit of like ptsd because i was like oh, oh no, my Natasha. god this is like wild like how how manipulative like it's a very it's just very manipulative because you have these people who are for the most part no one's going on a show I mean it's different when it's like chopped I worked on chopped for a year and that's like actually very legit like they actually Mm. really don't know what's in the box they really only have 30 minutes like those things are really true um but when you're on a show like any of these other shows whether it's a um whether it's a competition show like Project Runway I did a few seasons of, or if it's a show like uh, Real Housewives or one of those, um, they're on it because they want to be famous, right? Like mm-hmm. that's that's the purpose, but they're mm-hmm. they're also not famous for a reason, right? Like, <laughs> like it, which isn't to say that they're not talented, but like they're they're normal people for the most part, right. let's say they have money or have married someone wealthy and don't necessarily have a skill that is attributed to like fame. Right. right. Their like, fame comes from them being on the show. That's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's tricky because they're not good at it. And, and obviously like you'll notice like in season one, usually the new person's much more quiet. Mm-hmm. unless it's someone who's like been on reality shows earlier in their life and so they know what they're doing which also happens um but so you know they have to get they have to get used to it they have to figure it out and they have to also figure out how to like manipulate the producers back because because uh-huh. that's how it works and so like they do they do a really good job of showing that in unreal is like that's truly how it works is you have to you have, to, you have to be a liar. Like, you have to be a really good liar, and I'm not. <laughs> and so I had to quick – I had to get out of production, and I had to move into post because there was no way I was going to be able to do what you needed to do to get people to to do things that they don't want to do on set. Like, I, oh I couldn't. Could, this is wild. That's wild. So, that's so dramatic. Okay, I have one more question. Yes. I want to know <laughs> – so do the like when these things are instigated do they end up people end up actually having problems with each other after or is it like when they rap it's like ha ha high five like we're all in this together 
because like for shows like Real Housewives, like there's like actual family there yeah. that have like these huge feuds. And I'm wondering if like it's actually affecting family, like these families and they're fighting against each other or if everybody's sort of in on it together. No, I mean, so I, I've never actually worked on a Housewives uh, show, but the closest I came to was actually the last show I worked on, which is a Bravo show that was so horrific that it didn't actually air in the way that they, that any Bravo show usually airs. Like they, they aired all eight or 10 episodes on one day on like a Tuesday from (laughs) 2 AM to 10 AM. Like a marathon. Oh wow. (laughs) Yeah. It was really bad. It was called mother funders and it was about PTA moms in Atlanta. Oh Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It was I was like, this is really the one to go out on. Um, yeah. But <laughs> you so made a good decision. One, yeah. But so in that one, it was, you know, it was like not, it was, it was like a suburb outside of Atlanta. And um, it what it was like a small community of people who they'd known each other for a very long time. They weren't actual family members, but they were close friends in the beginning. And at the end, they literally hated, like were split into two groups and hated each other. No. Yeah, it's that's, oh sad. Bad. that's so bad. Oh, wow. Well, I know what we're going to be texting about later. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> back to your publishing journey. That was yeah. a tangent and a half. Yeah. So, okay. so, yeah, so I so I worked my way up to being a story producer. And, you know, in some ways, I was doing what I intended to do, right? Like I was writing in entertainment and uh, I was getting jobs. Like I always had a job offer before my next, my, my current job um, had ended. Cause you're like, you're a freelancer, right? So you always have to be like hustling, talking like, Oh, what show are you on? Do you need a new producer? You know, you like, and it's always hard for me to turn down financial security. Um, but I was also getting like genuinely depressed because I didn't like what I was doing. And it wasn't the type of writing I wanted to be doing, even if I was like, even if I would, I would hear myself say that and I'd be like, but like, how can you argue with the fact that you're making a career out of what you want to be doing? Um, so I decided to take a, and oh, and the other part of it is like the imposter syndrome only was getting deeper and deeper. Like writing a book didn't even like feel like a possibility at that point, but even, even switching from reality TV to scripted TV or film also felt really distant now because they, the industries couldn't be farther apart. Even though it's all entertainment, real scripted and unscripted are two different beasts, two different worlds, it, and neither of the two shall meet. And so, and there is a lot of like elitism in Hollywood and entertainment with regard to scripted versus unscripted. And so, it's hard to make the transition. And so, what I decided to do was take a uh, pilot writing class remotely with UCLA, um, or I applied to it actually. So what happened was I applied for my master's in screenwriting, uh, and I didn't get in. I got to the, like, I got, um, to the interview stage, but I didn't actually get accepted. Um, and you know, like these programs I was, I applied to like UCLA, USC, AF, 
AFI and those are like the top programs and they accept like 12 people and it's impossible to get into. Um, and I was devastated for like five minutes and I was like, well, at least I'm not an extra hundred thousand dollars in debt. So what, what can I do next? And I found through UCLA, they have this, um, non master's program, UCLA professionals program, which is this really, really awesome program that UCLA offers. It's a certificate program. Um, and essentially what it is, is, uh, three semesters. Each semester is taught by a different uh, teacher and the teacher is actually a working screenwriter in Hollywood. And it's the class is set up the same way their master's program screenwriting classes and pilot writing classes are set up where it's like a round table. You come in with pages every week, you read the pages aloud, you critique them, you give notes. Um, so the difference obviously between that and the master's program is the master's program has electives and you actually film things, you know, and there's a lot more involved, but you're getting a taste of what you would have been getting in the master's program for like, 4% of the price. And you're also getting to interact with people in the industry who are currently working in the industry. And it's really cool. So I was like, why don't I try this? Uh, and if I feel like I enjoy it, and especially if I like the, um, if I like the actual act of get of like getting real time notes and those sorts of things. Cause that's, that's really how it works in, in, uh, writer's rooms on TV shows. So it's not for everyone cause it's hard to get criticism and it's right. Like it's hard to do that and it's hard to do that face to face. And so, um, so I took, I took that, I got, I got accepted. You have to apply. Uh, I got accepted to that. Um, yeah, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> I really, I was really excited and it was, and it ended up being like the best thing that I ever did. So it was three semesters long. Uh, it was a nine month program. So I was still working uh, full time. And then I was taking this as a night class and it was a once a week, three hour class. And then you have to have pages every week. Like I think it was 10 pages every week. Um, and I know which like 10 pages is both a lot and not a lot, but like a lot when you also are working full time. Right. Um, for yeah. sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot. Like, if that's all you were doing, then okay. But you <laughs> were also yeah. doing it at night after work. <laughs> like, that's yeah. a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. And so um, so I did it. And you come out with three scripts, which is also a really short period of time to have three finished scripts. Um, and I really loved it. And I was like, okay, this is what I want to be doing. This is, like, actually what I want to be doing. And right around that time my husband got a job opportunity that could potentially move us to California. And I was really stressed about it. So both of us are born and raised in New York city, like very, like the worst type of New Yorkers. Like that. There was no <laughs> AKA the best type of New Yorker. That's correct. That's correct. But like to everybody else in the world, like I'm the worst and, and I, I can acknowledge it and it's fine because I know that, New York is the best. However, <laughs> um, it was really scary. The idea, like the only other place I've ever lived was my college campus. I didn't even go abroad. Like I, I, I'm really, uh, a New Yorker. And so, um, I was like, but you know what, let's do it. Like it's important to live other places. We have this opportunity. They're going to move us out there. When are we ever going to have a chance for that to happen? Um, and it gives me an excuse and like one that I can't argue with about leaving reality TV because 
I was never going to turn down a paycheck. Um, and I had been doing it for so long that it would have been really hard for me to get another job that I would have been happy at without literally starting completely over from the bottom. Um, and that felt really overwhelming if I was going to try to be throwing myself into writing as well. So we, so we moved out to California and I took nannying jobs and a secretary job. So jobs that I felt like I, I could do well and that didn't take up much of my brain space. Um, and then was just rewriting the script that I felt most confident about. Um, and I did that, oh, that came out of the program. And so I was doing that for about a year. And then I started, once it felt like it was in the right place, I started querying um, literary agents, but in script, like script writing agents. Okay. Um, and so I was, because I was living in California, I was living in Oakland, but that's like, not very far from LA at all. Right. So I have a lot of friends in LA and I, every three months or so started flying out to LA, staying, crashing on couches, staying with friends and just asking would anybody like, does anybody know a lit agent or manager who would be willing to let me have coffee with them just to get advice? Like not even asking them to look at my script, just like meeting people, hearing like what they're looking for. Um, and so I started doing that as well. And so I wasn't necessarily doing uh, like large batch queries where I was going through and taking notes on all the different uh, managers or agents that I thought would be good fits and then sending a query letter out. I was, I was here and there doing that. And then I was also just meeting people. Um, and I kept doing that for another year. Uh, I don't know the number of how many reps I reached out to, but it was a lot. Um, I also at the same time was submitting my script to, uh, like script festivals. And I, I got a few like quarterfinalist, semifinalist, uh, that, that were useful when I started, when after that happened, those were useful to mention in the query letter moving forward. Um, what ended up being the way that I got my managers was, was it it sounds crazy but my mom because she was visiting and she was I was talking to her, I was just compl I was frustrated at how long it, it was taking and I wasn't even getting like a bite like I wasn't even no one was even requesting anything I was just getting rejections or silence and she just started she was like okay and then she just started typing and I was like what are you doing and she was like I'm reaching out to this guy that I know on Facebook who's a director and his brother just graduated from a, a directing program in New York and he's getting a lot of buzz and so I'm going to connect you and I'm like okay but it doesn't really sound like you know these people and she's like I don't, I, she's like, I don't really but it's fine and I was like okay amazing so yeah she's it. yeah she's a lot but she's great um oh, she's so cute just, I remember her from your launch she was yeah. the most adorable yes, 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 yeah, she's great um so she reached out to this guy who she met once probably so my mom's a playwright uh I had mentioned she, my my parents are writers before my mom's a playwright uh and so knows a lot of people in the theater industry and I guess this this man's uh whose brother she was connecting me to is also in the theater industry so anyways he connect we got connected 
he offered to read my script, which I was like, great, that's awesome. But meanwhile, this person at the time, he was just graduating himself from a master's program. But I was like, look, any like help, any connection, anything is great for me. Like, I'm so grateful for it. And um, so he read this, the script, the pilot, and he really liked it, which was awesome. And he was like, hey, listen, there are all these mixers at my graduate school where we're connected to industry people. And this one manager had, had seen my short, he really liked it and said, like, if you ever have anything uh, new, send it my way. And he was like, would you, would it be okay with you if I sent it to him for you? And I was like, um, that would be fine. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and he was like, no, he was like, please don't get your hopes up because I've sent him three things already and he has not responded, but like, it can't hurt. And I was like, no, it sure can't like, please. And thanks. Um, and so he sent it and like a week later, his assistant reached out to me and was like, can we set up a call? And so I got to talk to, uh, my current, so I, have two, I have two managers, but they're both at the same company. So I, so I got on the phone with him and he actually had invited another manager from his management company, uh, to join us because they share a lot of clients because one of them focuses, they, they both overlap between, uh, books and film, but one of them focuses mainly in books and, and the other focuses mainly in TV and film. And, they loved the pilot, but they saw potential for me to do both. Um, and so they were offering to co-represent me within the company. Um, and I was like, uh, great, this sounds awesome. And and it, they've just ended up being so incredible and, and supportive and um, great. And I feel so, so grateful. And it's such a wild thing to me that I spent um, two two to two and a half years sending emails and like got no response. And all it took was this, my mom's random Facebook message. To the power, the power <laughs> that your mom possesses. Seriously. I think like at the end of the day, it's also proof that like, you know, it, it is a really hard industry to break into. So like you have to take advantage of any opportunity you have. And it's, it's a good thing to do. It's like yeah. good business sense. So that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, I mean, and I also just feel like it just comes down to luck in a lot of ways. Like, there's so much more to it, and there's talent, and you have to you have to find the person who who sees and appreciates your voice. But like, that was luck. That was luck that I was like complaining to my mom on that day, and that she just decided to send that message to mm. this person that she didn't know about their brother who she had never met. Like, that was wild. So. <laughs> um, so that is true. How did you, when did you get the idea for Color Me In and when did that whole um, journey come about? Yeah. So, you know, Color Me In, as I, w I said earlier, writing a, a book, writing books has been, was always my dream. And I, ta I always just talked myself out of it being a possibility. Um, and so in my head, like I'd, I'd started Right. I'd been writing it in my head and I had actually written down pieces of it. Like a lot of the poetry in it actually was already written. I had written it already. Um, and there were little moments that I would jot down since it is um, it's it's in it's fiction, but it's based off my experiences. And um, so, so it was a story that I knew I wanted to tell. And when I 
pitched it to my managers, I pitched it as a movie. Ah, okay. And because again, like that's where I was focused, right? That mm-hmm. was where I felt most comfortable. And that's where I felt like I already had a script. I had two other scripts that could be reworked. You know, like I felt like I, I had, I had a lot of room to grow. Um, and so I pitched it to them and they were like, we love this concept, but it works so perfectly as a book. Like, would you ever want to write it as a book? Um, you know, and I basically said to them what I was saying to, to you both just now, which is like, I don't know if I can. And like, don't you feel like it such a fun film idea? And they're like, yeah, but like, there's no reason it can't be a film after it's a book, but it works mm-hmm. so wonderfully as a book that if you'd be interested in writing it as a book, that's how we think it would be uh, best created. And okay. so I thought about it. I mean, they really had to convince me to, to really try because um, I really didn't feel like I, I could do it justice. Um, and so I just started writing it, uh, which it's such a different type of writing than, um, script writing. And I was, I really struggled because the diff, the biggest difference for me, and I don't know if either of you dabble in, uh, script writing, but for me, what was the hardest was with, with screenwriting, whether it's for TV or film, what's hard is you have a short period of time to get a whole world in, you know, mm-hmm. but what you, what you have that you don't have in, in, uh, manuscripts and prose is you don't have the visuals to rely on to help push the story forward because you can't have everyone saying every little thing, right? You, you rely yeah. on the setting and the glances and the motions, right? Like that helps communicate the story you're trying to tell. If it's not on the page in a book, the reader doesn't know it's there, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so I mm-hmm. felt like, I felt like the initial drafts, weren't they were very flat because I was like I don't understand why like what I'm seeing in my head is not is not on the page and they were like they were like because it's literally not on the page <laughs> oh my god that's so that's so interesting though that's so cool I I, I haven't written oh, sorry Pancho just like like he just like barreled into me um <laughs> I um I I haven't um written any um screenplays or anything but I've read them before and that's so true like there's so much that you have to describe in a in a book that's not going to be there and that's so interesting that transition that you had to make um I wonder if other people who've done the same have run into the same issue yeah who knows I mean I feel like some people just shift really seamlessly between the two uh one of my I have a mentor who uh my manager connected me to she's with our company and she's she's a really accomplished uh author and uh script and and tv writer and she's been like such an incredible um support and and mentor and teacher to me and she seems to just like very comfortably like go back and forth between the two I can't do that still like I'm I still have a really hard time like my brain needs to completely reset if I'm gonna be writing one versus the other um like I can't I can't in a week be like okay today I'm gonna work on the script and tomorrow I'm gonna work on the book that's just, I can't do that um so 
yeah, I don't know. I, I think it just has to do with people's brains, or maybe it's just my brain. I have no idea. <laughs> For Luceli Luna, ghosts are more than just the family business. Shortly before Halloween, Luceli and her best friend Sid cast a spell that accidentally awakens malicious spirits, wreaking havoc throughout St. Augustine. Together, they must join forces with Sid's witch grandmother Babette and her tubby tabby chunk to fight the haunting head-on and reverse the curse to save the town and Lucelli's firefly spirit before it's too late. With the family dynamics of Coco, an action-packed adventure of Ghostbusters, Clarabel A. Ortega delivers both a thrillingly spooky and delightfully sweet debut novel with Ghost Squad, coming April 7, 2020 from Scholastic. Pre-order today at buyghostsquad.com. I know that Color Me In is, is a, and as you said already, is a very personal story, um, and and a lot of it kind of comes inspired by some of your own experiences. It was, do you have kind of a goal for your author career to continue down that path of like, like using your personal experiences to inspire your work, or was it like a story that you had to get out in this moment, and you don't know what's going to happen in the future? Um, yeah, I feel like it's sort of, uh, more the, the latter, like that was the story that was, it's like the term, like that's the book of my heart, right? Like that's the one that I wish I had growing up. It's, um, it's while it's, it is fiction, it is also so true to, to my experience in a lot of ways. And it was something that, um, I, I felt like I could contribute this in terms of the story. It still took me a while, a while to get the confidence to actually write it down, but it was in terms of the story and the message. It was, it was something that I felt really confident that because of my experiences, I would be able to, um, tell it. And, Mm -hmm. um, now, but it, but it, it was so emotionally draining to mm-hmm. do and to be revisiting like there are a lot of painful experiences and um just like you know internal conflict and stuff that's that I had to tap into to write it um I I'm I, I when I finished it I felt like so relieved because I was really proud of of the the final project and and how it ended up like I was really happy with it and I was so glad because the whole time I was I was sort of going back and forth, like continuing to tell myself like, oh, this just doesn't feel right or it's not good or, um, you know, it just, it went through a lot of um, revisions and and in the beginning it was not working um, for a lot of reasons, <laughs> but wh- where it ended up was, was good. But I also remember like when it was finally done, when it was that final, final, like, okay, I'm sending it in and I'm not touching it again. I remember feeling like, man, I never want to have to do that specific thing again where I'm like so mm-hmm. deeply personally connected to it like at like at, wow like I am done with that <laughs> it's a lot um, and, you know, it's a lot it's a lot and it's like uh, who knows like I feel like now you know who knows moving forward with my life if there will be more experiences that I'll I'll feel passionately that have not been you know I feel like I could contribute to in, in a in a way that um because of my unique experience. But um, right now, I'm really enjoying not working on anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) 
So for people who haven't read Color Me In, which why haven't you read it yet? Go get it right now. <laughs> um, can you just tell them what the book is about? Yeah. Um, it is a coming of age contemporary YA novel about a biracial Jewish 15 going on 16 year old named Nevaeh Levitz, who is um, white presenting. And she is trying to figure out where she fits between her two worlds because her parents have just separated and she's now having to split her time between the affluent white suburb she's grown up in and her mom's black Baptist family home in Harlem, New York. And her dad is also forcing her to have a belated bat mitzvah instead of a sweet 16. So she's having to like come to terms with her biracial identity, her white privilege, and also find her place in religion that she's never really had much connection to all at the same time. And can you tell, um, can you share what what you wanted the title to be? (laughs) Oh my God. Oh, I'm so excited. I don't know the story. Oh, I'm so excited. What is it? Okay. (laughs) So I originally pitched the book as bot mixed <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> it's amazing it's so amazing it's the that's like the best title ever <laughs> it is not it was not received well <laughs> do they not do they not understand the genius of it i just they just must have not understood it i know well what's hilarious what's hilarious is um Recently, I don't know if you saw it, Tiffany Haddish just had a special called Black Mitzvah on Netflix because she had a bat mitzvah because she just found out her heritage. She's Eritrean and she's actually Jewish ethnically. And so she had she's like, com- like be- become more um, active in the Jewish uh, community and culture and religion and had a bat mitzvah as a, an adult. And the whole series is called black mitzvah and I was like you see guys like that now we couldn't have called it that because it would have looked like we were ripping it off yeah right but really Uh, you were ahead of your time you were ahead of your time (laughs) we'll back you up like if you want the movie to be named that we'll we'll be your witnesses we'll be like we know that she had this idea so long ago (laughs) even though you just said on the podcast that you don't know the story it's already not going well for for us. <laughs> right. Listen. Can you get on board, Clarabelle? Like, Listen, I'm just trying to cover our bases here. If we're going to do a scheme. Let's do it right. I want to name the episode Natasha Diaz and Bot Mixed Fuzz. You should. Yes. How can we name it anything else? Something's got to be named Bot Mixed now. Okay. And it okay. like we need the name to be a thing. This Ride or Die episode is going to make your dreams come true, Natasha. I can't wait. So when you first joined, because since you kind of came at um, getting published on a little bit of a different angle than Mm -hmm. the traditional journeys, like you started Mm -hmm. off with script writing first, Mm -hmm. um, how did you feel like joining the writing community and the publishing community did you um, did you know about kind of some of our conversations that we we're having about diversity and all of that stuff ahead of time, or was it kind of being thrown into the deep end? No, yeah, I just I really jumped in with my eyes closed. Like I had no clue what um, 
very much about the the community at large, um, or really, I didn't really know sense how much of a community it is, I should say, um, because like, obviously, we all know, like, it could be a mess. But when you <laughs> but like, at the same time, there are uh, like pockets of people. And I feel like this podcast, you both do such a good job of really highlighting the amazing figures that are within the community. Um, Thank that, you. That, no, and I really I mean, it's a really awesome um, thing. And and when you find the, the group within Kiblet um, that you sort of fit into that isn't toxic, that is supportive, that is trying to uplift both writers and stories and voices that are traditionally um, not, not celebrated, it, it's such a wonderful community. But I, I had no idea. I wasn't expecting I assumed that it was more about interacting with readers, mm-hmm. um, which that's obviously a part of it. But I I was unprepared for how, um, <laughs> how wild. Of, like, I mean, there's like celebrities, right? Like, I feel like some of some of these authors are true celebrities. And it's mm-hmm. like it's. In in the beginning, I was extremely overwhelmed. Like I remember, there were multiple days where I called my manager, and I was like, "I didn't get any writing done today because I was tweeting the whole day." And he was like, <laughs> and he, "He was like, why? He was like, why were you doing that?" And I was like, "I think it's what I'm supposed to do." And he was like, <laughs> he was like, he was like "What are you talking about?" Like, um, so I had to really, I had to figure out how. Um, how to find my place in the community and not force it and not, um, you know, like it's like any group of people, right? Like you're not going to be friends with everybody. Not everybody's going to like you, um, you know, just because you like them even. And um, it's really just about being yourself and you will make friends and acquaintances as a result of, of that authenticity. Um but it's definitely overwhelming. It's definitely like it was overwhelming. It's still at times overwhelming. Uh, it's getting finally getting less so. Um, but I even still have moments. But uh, yeah, I had no, I had, I had no clue what I was, what I was getting into. Yeah, it can be <laughs> quite overwhelming sometimes. I love that you thought you had to be tweeting. It's what I'm supposed to be doing. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's so like, great. I just remember like, I had like a pot of coffee and I was just like, Mer, and I was like going like, like twitching. That can happen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, especially if there's like some sort of like conversation happening and it, before you know it, it's like, oh, I've been here for seven hours. Like yes. that can happen very easily. Well, because uh, there's only some kind of drama. Mm-hmm. That's very yeah. true. Especially well, now. I, I think people are bored. So yeah, yeah. people are totally bored. Um, oh, I will. I don't know if you you forced yourself to do this because like you felt like you needed to, or I feel like you are a very naturally gregarious person. Um, also, for listeners, Natasha and I knew each other <laughs> in college. We went to yeah. the same college. Um, we have like overlap friend groups. Um, but so, and I always, I I always definitely remembered you as being like a friendly person. Um, but I remember you messaged me mm-hmm. like, and I was like, man, I, I remember legit thinking like, man, that's something that I would always be like nervous about doing, like just DMing someone. I don't know why, like it, 
I have like a disconnect. So I was like, man, Natasha is so cool. Like she's like, just like DMing people and like networking and like, just like in college and blah, blah, blah. Oh no. I mean, I felt comfortable messaging you because again, like you said, like, I know we weren't like close in college, but we had overlapping friends and we've definitely Mm -hmm. seen each other, um, at like, you know, a few things since graduating. So it's, Mm -hmm. um, But I mean, to be honest, it was mostly just because I felt the same way about you. Like I was on Twitter and I was like, oh my God, Kat is famous and I know her. I'm getting in. I'm riding on those coattails. Like I'm hopping aboard. So um, I I was so excited to have any connection to anybody. And I was so grateful that you were not annoyed by me I mean who knows maybe you were but like that you were open to to chatting with me no but like I I do think like it's interesting because it feels sometimes like a small world like because once you do get into publishing if anyone else you know gets into public gets into publishing your paths will inevitably cross yes but like it's it's nice too because then you can like you were saying you can know like at least one person um to get through this journey together. No, that was, that was really exciting for me. I was just like, this is so surreal. And I loved it. <laughs> I was shocked. I didn't know this until a few minutes before we Are called you, you. And Kat was like, by the way, I went yeah. to college with Natasha. And I was like, what? Nobody was- ever told me this. What? I can't believe that ever came up. Never. I was like low key flexing. I was like, yeah, <laughs> oh this my God. Girl, like, Natasha and I knew each other <laughs> before. <laughs> well, I want to ask about, um, I want to ask about, like, are you allowed to talk about anything you're working on? Um, not, well, I can say that I'm contributing to the Wild Tongues Can't Be Tamed anthology, which I'm really excited about. Um, but in terms of next book project, I can't say much other than there is one. Oh yay oh that's so exciting exciting yeah um so yeah that's it's it. such a it's such a, <laughs> it's such a publishing thing where you're like I have news I'll share it in nine months yeah <laughs> well yeah I'm also like severely behind on it and so I have this like fear in my gut that it's gonna disappear which I'm telling yeah. myself is not gonna happen but it's everything's stressful yeah (laughs) so it's so weird like an industry where like you get it you get like a verbal offer and you're expected to start doing work before you even like sign a paper contract which was like such a weird situation for me coming from a different industry I don't know if it was weird for you too but like (laughs) yeah no I mean it's weird and it's also weird because in Hollywood stuff like you, you can get an offer on something you don't put pen to the paper until you sign that contract. That's mm-hmm. how that works. Cause like, okay. yeah, so it's a very different thing. Um, and that's just not how it is in, in publishing. Um, definitely not. And, yeah. So, um, okay. So everybody who's on the podcast tells us either something they wish they'd known before they started or their most embarrassing publishing related story. You can do either or you can do both. It's up to you. So, I mean, I feel like I already sort of did most embarrassing, which is the title, but um, <laughs> no, but that's I, the proudest moment. Proudest yes. moment. 
um, yeah, but I can say definitely in terms of what I wish I had known, the biggest one is I wish I had known about Stet during copy editing. <laughs> nobody oh, told no- me. Nobody told oh, anyone, I feel And like. my copy edits took 50 bajillion years because my copy editor, while wonderful in a lot of ways, there were some cultural differences and uh, lack of knowledge on their part in terms of like colloquialisms in other cultures and communities or phrases that uh, were important to me to ensure authenticity and to sound like the characters, how I wanted them to sound like similar to how my family sounds. And rather than just being able to be like that I was writing like I mean this woman is woke now like she has all the information about everything oh, no. I was writing like paragraphs about like why this needs to be said this way or what the history oh, no. behind this term is um and it was also I mean it was also at times frustrating um because mm-hmm. I felt like if you're on my if you're on if your job is to work on this story, it, it takes a Google, right? To like, be like, oh, like maybe this isn't a mistake, right? Like maybe mm-hmm. this is, mm-hmm. um, and so not having, not having them do that and, and trying to be like, oh no, this must be wrong. You must mean this. And I'm like, no, that's not true. Like it actually is correct. And this is the reason why it felt a little bit like it didn't matter as, as much how I wanted the story to be told, which there was a lot of thought and intention put into the story um, and time and effort. And so that it was, it was both frustrating on just a, an energy um, level, but also a little bit um, emotionally, I was a little bit drained by the end of it, have feeling like, man, like I really have to justify everything. Right. Like I'm not getting the benefit of the doubt about anything mm-hmm. on the page. Um, so I, I I wish I had known about Stet. <laughs> oh man, yeah, it's a hard I, journey. I feel like a lot of people don't explain that, and you just like have to ask and find out. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you can you quickly explain it to our listeners? Oh <laughs> yeah, they don't know what. <laughs> right. So basically, like in copy edits, you're really getting into the nitty gritty of like line by line, like grammar and punctuation and phrasing, and if. Uh, the copy editor is trying to change something you just and you don't want it to be changed you just write stet <laughs> and instead I was writing like this is the history behind the term passing and <laughs> like, right I wrote like a whole other book <laughs> amazing I love yeah. that yeah you gave a free education on that one That's right. That's um, um okay Natasha can you tell people where they can follow you on the internet yes so I am on Twitter at Tashi Diaz and Instagram at Natasha Erica Diaz. Erica is with a K, not a C. Um, and I don't really use Facebook, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Perfect. So Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. It was really great to hear your journey and learn about reality TV because it's <laughs> my favorite I know. thing. Please, I cannot wait to get your text messages. You're about to. You're about to. It's going to be a lot. Trevor loves reality TV. It's like all I do. 
you're yeah. lucky you don't you've never worked on a british one because then oh, yeah, it I would know. be <laughs> a disaster ride or die is brought to you in part by t public Go to tpublic.com for custom apparel and designs. You can also check out our Write or Die merch at www.tpublic.com slash stores slash Write or Die podcast. Thanks for listening to Write or Die. Be sure to check out Wicked Fox by Kat Cho. And Ghost Squad by Clarabel A. Ortega. And while you're at it, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. See you next time, wordies. And don't forget to spread the word. <laughs>